learn about relationships are, number one, the good guys should win and bad guys should lose. And number two, everybody should get what's coming to them. Those are lessons we learned very early on in life. That the good guys should win, the bad guys should lose, and everybody should get what's coming to them. And consequently, you and I come into this life and into adulthood with essentially a toolbox full of tools for relationships. And I talked a couple weeks ago, about three weeks ago now it was, and I talked about how we tend to think that basically we only need four things. We've got to boil down to four essential tools, four tools. And if we can get these four tools down, we can master them and learn how to use them with precision and skill, then basically we can get what we want out of relationships. And even in relationships that are supposed to be a loving relationships, these tools become important to us and become uh, the, our, go-tool, our go-to tools. So the four tools that we've, uh, we lean into are convince, convict, coerce, and control. And if we can learn how to convince people that we're right, if we can learn how to convict people and make them feel guilty, if we can learn how to coerce people through circumstances... And overall, if we can learn to control people, then we think we'll be successful in our relationships. We'll get what we want, and and that's what that's supposed to be like, right? Because after all, good guys win, and we're good. And bad guys lose, and that's like everybody else, anybody who's against us for sure. And ultimately, everybody should get what's coming to them. And we kind of went through that message and accepted that premise. Those are tools that are handed down to a lot of us, and we move through adolescence and into adulthood working on those tools with that mindset. But we said that Jesus offers us a better toolbox. But without ever uh, buying into the old way of thinking consciously, the old toolbox becomes the mode by which we operate in terms of relationships. So what happens is I subconsciously move into every relationship trying to convince people, trying to convict people, trying to coerce people, trying to control people. We looked at the words of Jesus Uh, that actually we looked at for a couple weeks in a row here, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which is interesting to me, because nowhere in the Old Testament scripture did it ever say that you're commanded to hate your enemy. But even then, they had kind of added that on, like that's okay. Like, yes, you're supposed to love your neighbor, God says so, and it's perfectly fine to hate your enemy. That's what a mindset they they had grown up to accept. But Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then later he said, by this, by your love for one another. He said, by this you'll know that that everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So whether you uh, gain anything from it or not in that relationship, not the issue. Jesus says, I've called you to love your enemies. Because that's what the Father does. That's the ultimate in spirituality. He said, you want to be like your heavenly Father? love like your heavenly father. I love what uh, Andy Stanley said in the video that we played last week. He said, if the golden rule is to treat others as you want to be treated, then the platinum rule is to love others as God has loved you. I love that statement. That was my takeaway for that morning, from that morning. So the challenge a couple of weeks ago in uh, what I've decided is part one uh, was this, that I got this son, I got this daughter, I got this spouse, I've got this friend, I've got this boss, I've got this employee, I've got this ex. Would you be willing to shut the lid on the old familiar toolbox and just love that person? And ask God to teach you how to love them so that you can be like your Heavenly Father.
basically the bottom line is this, that God has called each of us to treat each other not the way that we typically treat each other, but he's called us to treat each other the way that he's treated us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus' agenda for us is that we would extend the very same grace that he is constantly extending to us. That's his agenda. So a couple weeks ago, we focused on the target, the ultimate goal, the place that God ultimately wants to lead us. And Jesus set a very high standard. He tends to do that. I don't know if you've noticed. When you read the words of Jesus and you're like, really, this is the expectation? Here's what he says. He says, here's how serious I am about you treating other people the way I've treated you. The goal is that you would be so committed to this principle that you would actually love your enemy. You're like, I don't have any enemies. Okay, actually love your ex-spouse. Oh, yeah, that one. (laughs) Actually love that employee. You know which one I'm talking about. Actually love that coworker. Actually love your boss. Actually love, this is crazy talk, your (laughs) mother-in-law. You know, whoever it is that's in your life that's that constant irritant that you don't necessarily think of as your enemy, because we're like, well, I don't have any enemies. But in the sense of conflict, right? So Jesus says, if you follow me where I want to take you, I want to take you to the place where you will actually, practically love that person. Whenever I do uh, a sermon on relationships and you hear uh, Jesus talk about, you know, love your enemy, those difficult people, whatever, you think and respond to that exactly like I do. And we raise our hands and we're like, uh, hello, uh, wait, 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 wait. You've got to hear my story. See, because if you heard my story, you, you'd know that I get a pass on that one. Because if you heard my story and if you knew my mother-in-law, if you knew my ex-spouse, or if you knew my boss, or if you knew my whatever, then you would say, oh, well, yeah, then never mind because uh, that doesn't count. You know, everybody else, yes, you've got to do this thing, but you get to sit right up front in the special reserve section. Uh, I don't mean to single you out, Rick, but, uh, you sit, but I just did. You sit up there because you're the exception to the rule, because your situation is like so bad, nobody else can identify, your circumstances are so extreme, you get a pass. You know, if you could just tell your story. And so people come to me, and they're like, it's easier for you to get up there and say, love your enemy. Well, first of all, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Because, like, I wouldn't say it. Because personally, it's hard to do, and it's uh, kind of crazy. <laughs> like, it's, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a very good idea, personally. I, I would not have come up with this. But Jesus said, love your enemy. I couldn't make that up, and I certainly wouldn't stand up here in front of you and think, hey, I got an idea. This came to me in the night. Listen to this, and love your enemy. Close in prayer. Like, I'm totally clueless to what you're going through. But Jesus said it, and it's easy to say that. I guess it's easy for you and me to think of other people who need to love their enemies. We can think of people who don't like us, and we think, yeah, they ought to love us because we're like lovable, wonderful people. We're nice people. They should love us. Because it's interesting when you think about you think about your, uh, that your response to love your enemy to think that maybe you're somebody else's quote-unquote enemy. You're the person they struggle to love. You're like, no, it can't be. And when you think about love your enemy and you take it into your context, into your life, 
into your family, into your workplace, into that relationship where you're having to swap your son or daughter off every other weekend and it's just hostile, you know, where you, you take love your enemy to that environment, you want to raise your hand and go, whoa, 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 you need to hear my story because I don't think it applies to me, at least not right now, give me some time. Or if it does apply, I'm going to need a visitation from God himself to explain to me how it applies and how I live this out because I have no idea if you could only hear my story. So I realized that. And that for us to make such pr- much progress as we talk about this, about love and forgiveness and grace, we need to hear each other's stories. So we're going to start, I think I'll start on this side of the room, and I'd like to hear your sad story and why you think you're the exception uh, to the rule. I know Punky's ready to go with this because he, no, I'm just messing, we're not going to do that, are you kidding? Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're like, finally, nope. So what we're... <laughs> I fully expect to see a rash of new, brand new YouTube videos come through my news feed today. <laughs> you wouldn't let me say it. I'm going to say it. What, what, what we're going to do is I'm going to tell you your story. How pretentious is that? Actually, the Apostle Paul is going to tell your story. He's told it. Because in the book of Ephesians, that's where we're going to be today, The Apostle Paul addresses believers. This is a sermon for Christians, and if you're here this morning, you're sort of on the outside looking in, this is a great day for you to be here because you're going to get a glimpse of what this thing's about, and I'm not even really going to be talking to you. How nice, right? You can just listen in so you don't have to feel guilty about anything because this is kind of an insider thing this morning. Because if I'm clear, you're going to get a good picture of the essence of what Christianity is all about. Because this morning, I'm going to tell you your story. It's in the book of Ephesians, and while you're turning there or looking it up on your, on your phone or whatever, Ephesians is a letter written to a group of people who lived a long time ago. This is the thing I love about the writings of Paul, is they were written to actual people who lived. And this was written to a group of people in a city called Ephesus. How many of you know where Ephesus is? A couple people. Do you know what, what country it's in today, the modern-day country? How many of you know? Right, Turkey. We've already heard reference to Turkey twice today now. We've talked about Turkey. Uh, it's a, actually, I looked it up. It's about 400 miles from where Josh and Sarah Wiberly live, the city, the ancient city of Ephesus. So it's a real place. This was written to a group of real people in a real church, in a real city. It was written by the Apostle Paul. It's the most, I think it's probably the most relational book in the Bible. Um, there's more hardcore, nitty-gritty kind of stuff about relationships in Ephesians than maybe any other place in the Bible. Um, this is a book where he makes some, he makes some, some wild statements, that dreaded one that some of us had to memorize as kids. It starts off, children. What's it say? Obey your parents. Obey your parents. That's in the Bible. That, th- this is the part where he says, husbands, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and did what? Gave up his life for her. Now, not, not so familiar with that one, I guess. That's the part, and that's where you guys are like, you're just like, right now, you're just like, yeah, you got to hear my story. Ladies, it gets worse. This is where the dreaded S word shows up. It says, wives, what? Guys are a little stronger on that one, good job. Submit yourselves to your husbands. And all the wives are like, whoa, wait a minute, it's 2018, North America, let's have a conversation. (laughs) Paul, first of all, Paul, you weren't even married. Am I correct? So where do you get off? 
you need to hear my story. If you heard my story, you'd be like, okay, 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 you get a pass. You know, you, don't, you get to sit in the section for the women who don't have to submit to their husbands because your circumstances are just like out of control. I never thought about that when I wrote these words. This is the book where it says, submit yourselves to one another. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you've been on High Street at all this summer. <laughs> okay, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't even like to preach or teach from it because everybody's like, nobody's going to do that. What does that really look like? Paul knew exactly how we were going to feel when he heard when we heard submit and love and obey, and he knew that if you and I were going to take to heart those these serious relationship passages, if we're going to take seriously what God has to say about relationships, then we need to understand our own story. So at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul says, look, I know you want to tell me your story, and I, I, you know, but you just kind of sit back and, and listen, because I, I need to tell you a part of your story that you have forgotten, a part of the story that you never include when you tell your story, maybe a part of your story you've never even heard before. I need to get you real focused and get you tuned in emotionally to a part of the story that you've overlooked. So this is his point, that if we would allow these next few verses to, that we're going to read together to sink in at a heart level, at an emo, like touch us emotionally, it'll revolutionize your approach to all of your relationships. It won't make them much easier, don't get me wrong, but it will clarify the target. It will so energize you to shoot for the target that it could bring healing to your relationship, and even if it doesn't bring healing on both sides, because sometimes this is a two-way thing, I understand. But it will revolutionize your approach and your perspective on your relationships with the people around you. Because this is the first part of the first verses, uh, the first part of the first verses of Ephesians, and uh, where Paul's basically saying, "Let me tell your story." So let's read some verses. Ephesians chapter one. We're going to begin with verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stop for a second, because a couple of weeks ago I was wrapping up a series. Um, what were we talking about? Waiting room. And I used a, a passage from, uh, I think it was 1 Corinthians, and basically the same, it's the same greeting. And I love that, that Paul just kind of starts his conversations this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So he starts by making this umbrella statement and says, let me give you some good news. In the realm of heaven and hell, whatever you know that is, in that dimension that you will enter when you die, God has already given you every single potential spiritual benefit. It is yours. He says, let me elaborate, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is, before you were ever born, before the creation of the world... And, and, and um, don't really ask me, don't ask me out this week to explain this further because I, like, I don't know. There's lots of stuff in the Bible that we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, and, and I really, we could speculate on what it means. But we're just going to wor- work through this and try to land somewhere. But before creation, God somehow saw, he pictured you. Think about that. Just look around the room for a second. Don't look, you're all looking at me. It's just a little awkward right now. But uh, as I look at all your faces, he pictured every one of you as individuals. He pictured you before, not before you were born, before the creation of the world. That you were in God's mind. And he pictured you and he determined, I'm going to change them 
all the way to the core of their nature in such a way that those people who will sin against me, which is all the people in this room, and some of them would turn their backs against me, I'm going to do something to the very core of their nature so that they can spend eternity with me in relationship with me, and I'm going to make them holy. They're not going to make themselves holy. You can't do that. I'm going to change them and make them holy. Because God's kind of like fire, and we're like paper, and, and paper doesn't have to decide whether or not it's going to burn in fire, right? Fire doesn't have to decide if it's going to consume the paper. It's the nature of paper and fire. They don't work well together. And uh, you're unholy, I'm unholy, God is holy. And he says, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them holy and blameless in my sight. Look at this, verse 4. In love, verse 4 and 5, in love he predestined, and like, whoa, dude, what? I don't know. I'm no theologian. I, I haven't figured this one out, but I've got some ideas and uh, so I know a lot of people in a lot of churches like to spend lots of hours discussing and debating and arguing, and they take open-hand issues and make them closed-hand issues, and then all of a sudden we've made more enemies. But a lot of times just to hear them talk about things, hear themselves talk about things like multisyllable words like predestination, and you know, and how does that work, and what does that mean, and how could God, and what about free will, and what if God is sovereign, then are we just pawns in his hand, and why did God, and why didn't God, I don't get it, and let me explain it to you, since you don't seem to understand. <laughs> Listen, you understand that I wrestle with this too, right? Here's how I approach some of these big ideas like predestination. And don't get me wrong, I love to study. I love to read, I love to learn things, I love to hear what other people have to say about things that I don't understand, um, and once I've learned them, I love to debate them. And once I've formed an opinion, which doesn't take me very long, I like to debate it some more. But I refuse, real, but the truth is, I refuse to get sidetracked. I'm not going to let the concepts that I don't fully understand, I'm not going to let the concepts that I can't clearly articulate to anybody else derail me and distract me from applying the teachings of Scripture, and especially the words of Jesus that I do understand. You with me on that? So anyway, that's my disclaimer. You can come ask me about the predestination thing if you want to. You won't be very satisfied with the answer. <laughs> Here's what really matters. Paul says he predestined us to sonship through Jesus Christ. And he says the other thing that's happened to you, God decided that you're not going to be part of a club. You're not going to be part of a business. You're not going to be part of a nonprofit. You're not going to be part of a cause. You're going to be part of a family. And God decided to adopt you and, and adoption in the Greek was, in that Greek world, in that ancient Greek world, was far different from adoption in our culture. In our world, if a family wants to adopt a child, they go, they talk to an attorney probably, they talk to some organization, they talk to um, a nonprofit that arranges for these things. And, it, and sometimes you can adopt a child that hasn't even been born yet. And there's a long, tedious, sometimes expensive process. And some of you have been through that, but there's a process. That's the process. Back then, in Paul's context, they adopted, listen, adults. Might have been a better system, because you could wait a little while, see, uh, let the kid grow up some, say, well, let's see, that one's almost done medical school. How about that one right there? I'd like that one. You know, his earnings are what? Let me see his, uh, his tax returns. Let me see, oh, yes, that one. I'll adopt that one. Because basically, they waited until they knew what they were getting. No risk involved. And this is the picture, that God, before you took your first breath, before your heart beat for the first time, before you had your first good intention, 
God decided to adopt you into his family, which gives you right of access and gives you the right of companionship, which gives you the promise of compassion and an environment of belonging to the God of the universe before you've proven anything to him. Uh, for six years, I worked in the after-school program at, at the Y, where Rick and I worked together. And uh, Every day for, we worked together, every day for six years, with, without exception, every day, I would find myself in a conversation with, let's say, a coworker. <laughs> we fix so many of the world's problems, um, you have no idea. Or we'd be in a, I'd be in a conversation with a parent, or sometimes a child, if I had to. And during that conversation, one of the kids would come up to me and would poke at me and pull on my shirt. It's like, Todd, Todd. Todd, 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 Todd. Just kind of like hanging around and they're interrupting and they would butt into my conversation trying to get my attention. And my response to that was that they would have to wait their turn. They'd have to back off, respect my space, respect my private conversation and wait their turn. That's when they went, Rick, 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 Rick. And I don't know how you, but anyway. So during my time when I was working at the Y, we were meeting for church at the Y. We met there for six and a half years on Sundays and so one Sunday, um, I'm there after church and having a conversation. And there's all this activity. We're putting stuff away, and I'm standing there having a conversation, avoiding work. And, uh, but I'm sure I'm having a, I saw something similar take place, and it struck me. And I've told this story before, and just, it, it's still fresh in my memory. It was similar, but notably different. I was standing there after church talking to someone. I'm sure we were having a one-on-one conversation. I'm sure it was something that was relatively important. And while we're talking, I feel this tugging on my pant leg. And I look down there, and there's Erin, who's three or four at the time, standing there with her arms outstretched to me. I didn't even give it a thought. I just reached down, picked her up, and I held her as the conversation continued. Now, for the rest of you, if I'm already in a conversation, you've got to wait your turn, okay? Just butt out. Just give me some space. little manners is nice. But my children, and just so you know, my grandchildren... They just got to raise their arms to me, and they're in. And God says, that's what I decided to give you. Before you breathed your first breath, before you said your first prayer, before you did your first good deed, I decided to give you access. I decided to give you the most intimate relationship with the most intense kind of love that there is between a parent and a child. That's the kind of relationship, he says, that I chose for you. Look at this. It gets better. Verse 5. In accordance with his pleasure and, good, and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption from sin through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's stop for a second. Man, there's a ton of stuff in here. The word redemption is a word picture. We could spend the rest of the morning on this. We'll probably spend some weeks on this. Redemption means God bought you back. You're like, bought me back from what? Good question. That you and I belong to what the New Testament calls the prince of, the, of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We, that you and I belong to sin. That you and I had no hope on ourselves. The picture is of someone walking along, seeing a slave on a slave block being auctioned off. Now, have you ever seen a slave block? You ever seen this? This is a, this is a slave. Uh, I mean, I'm thankful that I've never seen this in practice and sometimes here's the truth though these images get cleaned up for us 
And when they do, they kind of lose their power. This is a monument in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and it's really not a monument, because a monument is something that is created after the fact to honor history. This is history. This picture is history. It's a slave block. It was used in the actual sale, sale of slaves. And this particular uh, piece of history has been at the center of a local controversy for a while now. But here's the thing. Um, people who support its presence believe that it's a reminder of years of hate and oppression. And it's been preserved to remind us of our past, to remind us of those who suffered, with the hopes that, as a society, we would safeguard ourselves from repeating our past. That's why it remains. But can you imagine, and I don't, I don't think we can, the sight of a slave on a slave block being auctioned off. I mean, human beings. And someone saying, and we kind of get the concept behind it, right? But can you imagine someone saying, I want that person, and walking over and paying whatever price in order to have that person become not his slave, but a part of his family? And that's what God did. You and I were on the slave block. God said, I don't care what the price is. I'm outbidding the highest bidder. I want him. I want her. And I want them to come into my household and to live as part of my family. Let that sink in. And the Apostle Paul says, he forgave us of all of our sin. And this all happened before you even sinned. And God decided before you even sinned that he was going to credit to you and give to you forgiveness for all your future sins, knowing all the sins that you would commit, all the broken promises, all the deals and the bargaining you do with God, knowing all of that, he decided he would just forgive you. Verse 7. The forgiveness of sins in accordance, right, yeah, forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Remember those words a little later this morning. As we sing, some of the songs we sing, I love that they're lifted right out of Scripture. You know what grace is? Grace is simply getting what you don't deserve. That's the simplified definition. And the Bible pictures it, not only here, but in other places. Of God taking the biggest bucket he could find and just dumping it all over you. Not, and so you didn't just get a little bit of grace, like all, just got a perfect amount of grace that you needed, but you got all the grace you could imagine. He lavished it on you. He just, he just lavished on you what you don't deserve. Every spiritual blessing, Paul says, forgiveness, redemption, regardless of what you've done, bought you back from the slave block of sin, regardless of the cost. He lavished his grace on you. Verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. And in these next two verses, essentially Paul not only um, did he says not only did he do all this, but then he told you all about it. He sent men to write the Bible, to tell us about it, to tell us the story. This is our backstory. And he gives us this picture of how the whole thing ends up. That one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to recreate heaven, he's going to recreate earth, and we're going to we're going to he's going to set up an earthly kingdom and we're going to live in it. Did you know we're not going to heaven when we die? Did you know that? Oh, dude, that's wild. Read Revelation 21. You tell me where, where we're going to spend eternity. And he's going to come back and set up an earthly kingdom. We're going to live in it. We're going to know God. And he's going to remove sorrow. He's going to remove death. He's going to remove sickness. We're going to dwell together with God. That's what he's chosen for us. Verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit 
who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let me just summarize this because, again, there's a mouthful here. These are verses that are hard to memorize, okay, and it's even harder to understand. Let me summarize this. Once God saved you, once you put your trust in Christ, then the Holy Spirit moved in. And the Holy Spirit's like a seal, like a, like a reminder to you of what God is doing. And every time you sin and every time you're comforted and every time the Holy Spirit gives you insight into the Word of God, every time the Holy Spirit kind of rattles you a little bit, it's a reminder of all that God's done and all that God will do and all that God is doing. It's a reminder that you have a place in God's family. It's a reminder that you have an inheritance, that there's a future, that you will live forever, that you'll look face to face into the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ and all your sins are wiped away and anything that could separate you from God has all been removed. Here's the best part. Do you know why he did all that? Just look back at verse 5. Here's why he did all that. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Look at verse 11. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Don't miss this. Do you know why God has done all this for you? Just because he wanted to. It isn't a reflection of anything good about me. It isn't a reflection of anything good about you. Just out of the kindness of his will because he wanted to. Knowing everything you would think and do. He said, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to the point of the death of my own son, I'm going to have them as my own. They will be my children. They'll live with me forever. Just because he wanted to. Wouldn't it be a shame if your whole Christian experience, all these truths from Ephesians 1 were just words on paper? And they never touched down in your heart and in your emotions. Can you imagine what would happen to your thinking and your whole outlook on on life if those truths that we just blitzed through, um, and each one's kind of a sermon in itself, but what would happen? If each one of those truths touched down at an emotional level to the point of, oh, he chose me. All the stuff that he knew about me, and he chose me. He knew all the sins I would commit. He forgave me anyway. He chose me not to work for him, not as his slave, but he chose me as a child. And he gave me direct access, a sense of belonging, a sense of commitment from him as my heavenly father. What if that touched down at a heart level? I think it would revolutionize your perspective on everybody around you. And until what God has done for us in Christ becomes a heart thing, we'll never be able to consistently return good for evil. We'll never be able to consistently return love for hate. We'll never be able to consistently return acceptance for rejection. But should this ever capture us, that when Jesus says, love your enemies, we're like, no problem. And Jesus says, I want you to do this, we're like, no problem. After all you've done for me, what could, what could you ask me to do that I would, could ever hesitate? How many of you uh, read um, Orwell's uh, 1984? How many of you read that? Keep your hand up for a second. I just want to do a little demographic study. Okay. How many of you had to read it for school? I'm curious. Did anybody read it just because? Okay. Uh, how many of you read it before the year 1984? 
most people, yeah, okay. How many, if you haven't read it, how many of you are at least familiar with it? Okay. Um, do, you, do you remember how the year 1984 uh, came and none of that stuff happened? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, there, but there's a statement in the book, and uh, this isn't really anything, uh, just to pull, I want to pull the statement out of the book. It's not an endorsement or a condemnation. The book's really about Big Brother, right? And Big Brother's essentially this unseen character that controls everything. And there's a statement in there that says that he who controls the past controls the future. And in the world of Big Brother, they kept changing history because they realized that people responded in the present and they made decisions in the present and then in the future based on what they thought happened in the past. So if you could change what happened in the past, you could direct and control people's decisions in the present about the future. And if you talk with somebody, for instance, who lived through the Great Depression, people who lived through the Depression had a common outlook on some things like money and oftentimes on banks. That's why some generations were more comfortable keeping wads of cash under their mattress than they were in a bank because they're thinking, is that's never going to happen to me again? Happened to my family, it's never happening to me again. And their past shaped their decisions about the future. And many of us have things in our past that are kind of lodged in our hearts. And the emotional implications of those things, man, we constantly make decisions based on not wanting to repeat the past. Because whoever controls the past controls the future. And the Apostle Paul is, what he's doing here in, in Ephesians is saying, look, if I could get you to buy into and to truly believe and to truly lock into at a heart level what God has done for you in the past, it'll change your future. It'll change your future relationships. It'll change your perspective on all of your relationships with others. If this could really sink in, then when I get over here a few chapters later to, you know, children obey your parents, it's a no-brainer. If you could only grasp what God has done for you in Christ, then when I ask you to make some sacrificial decisions in your relationships, when I ask you guys to love your wives, when I ask you women to submit to your husbands, when I ask you everybody to submit to one another, it's not that big a deal because it's found its place at a heart level. But as long as these concepts are just words on paper, this is what he does next. He says to the Ephesian believers, he says, I've decided to pray that God would open your spiritual eyes so that there would be an aha, aha moment, that you would just have this emotional response to God's truth. So there would be a sense of awe, so that you would be overwhelmed with what God has done for you. Verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, that's a heart level kind of thing, that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul says, let me tell you, when I pray for you, I'm going to pray that you get it. I'm going to pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would see it, not just hear it, that you would see it here, and upon seeing it here, you would just be overwhelmed with the goodness and the grace of God towards you, because that before you had your first thought, before you made your first move, God had a thought towards you. Then almost as an afterthought, almost kind of out of order, it's as if it dawns on him, you know, maybe the problem, maybe the reason is, is that these are just kind of words on paper. Maybe the reason they don't get it is because they forgot or maybe they never knew to begin with, you know, what their lives were like and what their situation was like before God moved in. So it continues the thought, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, as for you, he says, you were what? You were wounded? 
You were swooning. You were unconscious. No, it says you were dead. You had no life. You had no spiritual life. No concept. You just had no hope. In terms of real spiritual life, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Beyond that, it just gets worse. He says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. In other words, in case you've, uh, in case you've forgotten how, how bad it was, not only were you spiritually dead, you lived out your death. Okay? You were born spiritually dead, and then kind of as an insult to God without even really knowing it, you lived out your death. You were immoral, you were impure, you were self-centered, you hurt people, you used people, you filled your mind with junk, you abandoned your commitments, you broke your promises. In other words, we were a mess. That's all Paul's saying. That we were a mess. And many of us who were saved as kids, we came to a relationship with Jesus as children uh, who should have known better. We did all the same stuff as the non-believers did. It's like, oh, we knew better. But Paul's like, don't forget how bad things really were for you. Remember that God saw us and he said, it doesn't matter, whatever it takes, as unholy and as unrighteous as you are, I want them. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. This next verse, verse 4. But God, uh, depending on the translation that you're reading, uh, in some cases the the translators have moved some things around to make it easier for us to understand. But um, sometimes in in the Greek grammar, the way I understand it, uh, when they want to emphasize something, they move something to the front of the sentence. And I love this. Because of his great love for us. We want you to get this. Like, above everything else, we want you to get this. This is the first thing. Like, understand, God's great love for us. You got it? Get your mind around that? God's great love for us? Now let's keep reading. But God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved or rescued. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, verse 8. For it's by grace you've been saved. You know what that is? It just means that you've been kind of locked into a relationship with God. You're in. That adoption thing. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's going, you were dead in your transgressions and your sin. You were just messed up. I mean, you hurt people. You thought you were better than somebody else, all this stuff. But then, but God. Because of his great love, but God, he stepped in and he saved you. And if that really got here, it would revolutionize your love for other people. When it came time for you to tell your story so you can get a pass from the tough teachings, you'd be like, never mind, I don't need to tell my story. I, I don't need a pass after all. After all that God's done for me. 
So what do we learn? Let me just summarize this. First thing is that there's more to our story than we remember. There's more to our story than we tell. No one's ever come to me and said, yeah, Todd, that message, yeah, whatever, I need to tell you my story. Because it began, well, I guess it began right before the creation of the world. And uh, see, right before the creation of the world, God chose me, and then he forgave me, and then I was born, and then I abandoned his forgiveness, and I sinned away, and he, then he saved me. And even after I was saved, I continued in sin, but he hasn't retracted his forgiveness. And he's promised me eternal life. And he blessed me with every spiritual blessing. And he promised me an inheritance. And I'm his child. And I don't have to wait in line to talk to him. So I'm going to live with him forever. That's the first part of my story. I've never, no one has ever started there. This is the part we forget. This is the part we overlook. Maybe it's the part we don't even acknowledge or understand. Because if you were to come to me to tell me your sad story, you'd start probably with the part where you were rejected. You probably start with the part where you were abandoned. You probably start with the part where you were mistreated. You'd start with you. And if that's all there is to your story, then yeah, you ought to get to come sit over in the reserve section for the people who get a pass from loving your enemy. But what we've learned from these pas- this passage this morning is that there's more to our story. There's more to your story. There's more to my story. More than we often remember or certainly realize. And, and that if we could attach to our story of hurt. And some of you have been hurt, and I acknowledge that. If you could attach to our stories of abandonment and rejection, for some of you, that's part of your story. If we could attach to our stories the acceptance of God, it kind of diffuses the whole, you know, well, what I deserve, and it isn't fair. And suddenly I find within myself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, in some way a desire to move into those arenas of hurt and rejection and love as I've been loved. Second thing we learn is we get a real clear look at God's approach to people who reject him. And we could, we ought to learn something from God's approach to people who reject him. We learn these five things, that he offers them what they need, he offers them what they don't deserve, he doesn't retract his offer when when it's refused, he doesn't make them pay him back, and when necessary, he lays down his life for them. Look at that list. That's how God responds to people who reject him. Does it make something inside of you want to get down on your knees? Does it make something inside of you ask God, how could I have been so selfish? How could I have been so caught up in my own hurt and pain? Does it sort of clear the way for you to think differently about the people in your past and the people around you? Does it clarify where God wants to take you in relationship to the people around you? Because this is what God did for you, just because he wanted to. Third thing we learn, it's by implication, it's not in the text, but it's that at the cross, we lose our right not to love those who don't love us. At the point where you accepted Christ as your Savior and you recognized your hopelessness, a band's going to come, so don't be alarmed. I know that's happening. You're like, does Todd know there are people moving behind him? At the point where you accepted Christ as your Savior and you recognized your hopelessness apart from God, at that point, listen, you lost your right not to love. You lost your right not to pursue relationship. You lost that right at the cross. And if you're all hung up on justice, you know, people ought to get what they deserve and people ought to pay the price for what they've done, then listen, if you're hung up there, 
you won't follow Jesus where he wants to take you. If you're all hung up on, but it's not fair, it's just not fair, then you're not going to follow Jesus where he wants to take you. But if you're willing, and if your heart's desire is to be a child of your heavenly Father, if your heart's desire is to be what God is calling us to be, as followers of Jesus, then you'll go there with the people in your life. And it won't happen by trying to be that. You know, it'll happen when you get a real heart's view of what God has done for you in Christ. Because there at the cross, all of our excuses kind of melted away. And you might be like, well, this is... uh, this might work for preachers, and this might work for some people, but I'm telling you, in my world, in the world that I live in, in my relationships, in my marriage, in my work, you're dreaming, dude, because it won't work. In other words, all you're saying is you don't know my story. To which I would say, I kind of do. You're on your way to an eternity without God, and God in his mercy got out in the middle of the road and got your attention and stopped you just because he wanted to. That's the context, listen, for all of our relationships. And you're like, but the pain's too intense, it's just too emotional, I'm just not ready, I believe it's true, but I just don't know how. Then here's what you ought to do this week. Here's going to be your takeaway. You ready? Tomorrow morning, get up a few minutes earlier than you normally do. Turn to Ephesians and pray this prayer. Lord, enlighten the eyes of my heart. Don't pray, Lord, help me love my enemies. But Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Break through my hardness. Break through my anger, my hurt, my pain. Break through all of that and lighten the eyes of my heart. That's tomorrow morning. And then Tuesday morning, you get up early and you say, Lord, enlighten the eyes of my heart. I want these truths to touch me at a heart level. Here's why it has to touch us there. It's not just you can feel something. It's because your anger and your hurt and the things that are keeping you from pursuing the people who hurt you and are keeping you from really loving your enemies, it is just so emotional. And that's why we can't do it, because we feel so deeply. It's hard to go in that direction. And that's why God, if you allow him to, he'll take these truths and he'll bring them to that level. And as these truths begin to wrap themselves around your heart, you'll change. And your perspective on the people in your past will change. And your perspective on the people around you will change. And you'll be set free to love your enemies. The most direct route from your heart to someone else's is love. And in the process, the people listen in your life may never change. But you'll be changing. And you'll be learning to live life as a child of your Heavenly Father. And that's my prayer for all of us. Let's stand together and sing.